0: Hi everyone, thanks for tuning in and welcome to the first episode of Project WASTA.
1: We're happy you can join us. I'm Amy Fias, a PhD student studying modern Middle East history at UC Santa Barbara with a professional background in museums and archives and a non-professional background in cat fangirling.
0: And I'm Tyler Kinn, a PhD candidate studying the Middle East at Yale University's History Department and a part-time Instagram cat photographer. This podcast was developed by Amy and I to talk to people with Middle East-related humanities PhDs and ask about their experiences and strategies in the Middle East history job market. Basically asking, how did you get where you are? And what are the different paths after one finishes a Middle East PhD? Be that people talking to people who are either tenured professors, postdocs, adjuncts, publishers, librarians, or think tank consultants hoping to bring forth the types of conversations which we wish we had heard from people earlier in our academic careers.
1: So basically, how to access that (laughs) WASNA.
0: Today, we are having a conversation with Lauren Banco.
1: Lauren is currently a lecturer at Yale University. She is primarily a historian of the modern era Middle East, with a particular focus on the history of Palestine. She received her PhD in Near and Middle East history from SOAS in 2014, following that with a postdoc and finishing publishing her first monograph by Edinburgh University Press in 2016, titled The Invention of Palestinian Citizenship from 1918 to 1947. Hey everybody, uh, we're here at Yale University with uh, Lauren Banco, who is a historian of the modern Arab Middle East with a focus on the modern history of Palestine. Lauren, thank you so much for um, spending your time with us. Thank you. It's good to get a chance to talk about some of these things. <laughs> <laughs>
0: so, so what has been your general experience with graduating from SOAS and getting into the job market? You know your your bio, you have you got your book published, which is a huge, huge step. So how has how that process been initially and now a few years after and after the publication of your first monograph?
2: Okay, thank you. Um, I think the experience with SOAS perhaps is slightly different in the sense from doing a PhD in the U.S., only because it's much shorter, right? So yeah. it's four and a half, maybe up to five, five and a half years maximum The opportunities for funding in the UK are much less. So when you're admitted to a PhD program, it's not. You're admitted on the basis. You're going to be funded throughout it. Um, So the first kind of glitch I had, if I should even mention this, was when I was first. It's it's okay. We we know glitches. Yeah, (laughs) gosh. When I was first accepted to SOAS for the PhD program, and I went sort of straight through from undergrad, master's, and Mm -hmm. applied immediately for the PhD. So I went no breaks at all. Um, The problem being I applied when I applied for SOAS, I missed the funding deadline, which was like (laughs) perhaps (laughs) catastrophic, but also (laughs) at the same time, SOAS that same year cut certain funding for PhD students in the humanities and in history for various reasons. Yeah, Yeah. So the main, and this is kind of related to the main issue with studying in the UK or teaching in the UK, is that funding money is tied to things like completion rates of PhD students and the amount of things that are published because all the funding for most universities is coming from the government. So Mm. there's not really these self-funded private university systems except for like Oxford, Cambridge, a few others. Mm -hmm. Um, So money is very, very tight. So that was sort of one of the first elements of this process of doing the PhD at SOAS that was different from what I may have expected doing one here in the US, the lack of funding. Mm -hmm. Um, But in the end, I mean, I was able to complete it within the amount of time. So that was completely fine. Um, Ended up being able to do teaching as part of the PhD and afterwards. So I was very lucky that I had a lot of teaching experience. So doing tutorials or teaching assistant things, but then also I was able to do what we call lecturing but basically is you know, convening a whole class doing yeah. everything for it um, two different classes over a couple of years as well. So I came out of the PhD with that with some publications. Uh, it only took a f- more than a few months um, maybe about 10 months. After finishing the PhD, I was still at SOAS until I got a postdoc, and then I had a three-year postdoc after that. So in that sense, I was really lucky and was able to use the postdoc, the beginning of it anyway, to write up the PhD into the book manuscript that came mm-hmm. out in 2016, which was kind of right on track from where I had been told I would want to be. Doing yeah. a PhD and then publishing a monograph based on it within a couple of years in order to get that publication, yeah. get a book out, which supposedly was like the way to get a job but the
0: golden the golden yeah. ticket yeah and yeah, so, yeah. Let's, so how did yeah <laughs> so so it worked right
2: no. <laughs> well i don't know i mean it didn't work necessarily for getting a permanent job which yeah. i think is still the main and maybe we'll talk about this later on yeah. but the main issue in yeah not just history but in academia in yeah. general this you know temporary adjuncting fixed-term mm-hmm. jobs which is the same in the uk as mm-hmm. it is back here in the states yeah. so that sounds, yeah. that's
1: that's that's really great. Could you tell us a little bit more about, like... <laughs> I don't know if this is, like, ironic. <laughs> no. Oh, yeah. This is great to think. No. Uh. We're really interested also in kind of how that book process works. Mm. And, you know, because I'm at the beginning. Um, yeah. Tyler's kind of at the end. And we're told that, like, should you think about your dissertation in a book sense? Yeah. Or how do you organize it? Was... So how was that whole securing a contract and writing yeah. it and adapting it for a particular audience working with the press? Yeah. Really curious about mm-hmm. that. Yeah. I think I'm at this weird
2: stage now where I'm trying to work on a second book. I mean, I'm not mm-hmm. that far with it, but yeah. I'm. this is a project that's come that has nothing to do with it. I mean, it has some things to do with what I did research on, but it's not related to the topic of a PhD at all. So mm-hmm. I'm, that starting from scratch, I'm finding kind of difficult, mm-hmm. whereas with the PhD, it was almost like a ready-made book project with some I mean you had to tweak it a little bit but that was something that I was you know told to do Mm -hmm. ensure when you're writing the PhD towards the end and especially what my supervisor advised me to do was when I made the in the UK you present your viva to a committee um, and then they you know pass you or not With various conditions. Mm -hmm. Um, And so most people, maybe not most people, but I had, you know, I passed it and got a few corrections that I had to do within a couple of months. But it didn't take too long to do them. But what I was told by my supervisor in doing them was think about how through these corrections, especially maybe reworking the conclusion, reworking the introduction of the PhD before, you know, it's finally awarded. Um, Think about how you could say things and write things that would be good to include in the book that comes out of this. So think at that stage, how you could adapt this to a wider audience than just, you know, your committee, your supervisor. Mm-hmm. And so I did kind of take that on board and I was really lucky in that my committee, uh, for the Viva, Their comments and their feedback and the things they wanted me to change were exactly in line with thinking about how would you then present the same material as a book manuscript. Mm -hmm. So they were very helpful in that sense, in kind of showing how would you broaden this, how would you make this argument, you know, make more sense or connect to all of these other things or other literature. So that was really good. So when I came to actually revising it for a book manuscript, I submitted it, uh, eventually the, the... publisher was uh, Edinburgh University Press and I decided to go probably for good reasons with a university publisher and that's something I think not everyone does for the first book but I think it's useful to get a university publisher to do to do the book Mm -hmm. Um, and it was really it was great working with Edinburgh they sort of from start to finish, met all the deadlines. I met all the deadlines. So maybe this is also like an, a different case because everything was on time. And, <laughs> no, not necessarily because of me. Yeah. But at the, when I submitted the proposal, it was right at the time that they, their own committees met to consider mm-hmm. things. Okay. When they got feedback from peer reviewers, that was done right at the time, that the next stage that the publisher would have to do before waiting you know, for the next round of these things mm-hmm. to happen. So everything was on time in that way. Maybe I was just lucky so, that
0: I... So were they the only, like, publisher that you reached out to? Or how, like, was this, like... Did you have, like, yeah. a list of places you were trying to... Yeah. So, ...get published in or Yeah, get published with?
2: Yeah, so I I think... I think the advice I was given was kind of conflicting and in some senses what I was told to do is to submit your proposal to more than one publisher which I realized was an absolute mistake <laughs> <laughs> so I did submit the proposal to some other publishers and in, and in that sense that was fine because some of them got back to me and said okay we really can't consider this right now or then they would give me some advice and then not get back to me and so in the end what happened was I submitted the proposal to Edinburgh and to one other publisher, um, which was Cambridge. And Mm -hmm. both of them were interested in it. And both of them requested the full, like a manuscript. Uh And my mistake was to send that manuscript to both of them. And so there were two publishers reviewing it at the Mm -hmm. same time. And that that was... A big no-no. So in the end, (laughs) Edinburgh was the quicker one and they got everything back and the peer review was great and I was working on the edits from the peer review when the other publisher got back to me also with Fairly good reviews. And so I had to, like, shamefully say, I made this mistake and sent this to you and to someone else, and I'm about to sign a contract with someone else. Yeah. So all of that work that the other publisher did in getting reviewers was really... Yeah. So,
0: like, the, these un, these unwritten rules that yes. seem to yeah, pop yeah, yeah, up yeah. everywhere that yeah. you have no idea about, exactly. and everyone's like, it's so obvious. Yeah. Why didn't you know yeah, this? Yeah, until you experience <laughs> it,
2: or until someone, a good friend or colleague says to you, you know, this is how <laughs> you should take this forward, you don't yeah. necessarily realize <laughs> at that stage yet
0: yeah because also the the whole it sort of contradicts the whole job market process where you yes. you do apply to you do yeah. send it to every everyone and everything exactly yeah. At least yeah. that's my understanding. Yeah, <laughs> that's, and that yeah. was probably
1: the mode I was in doing this as well. Yeah. Like if we're, if we're wrong about that, let us know. Yeah. Someone <laughs> yeah. let us <laughs> know. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. This, this is based on no real information. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So.
2: Or no like, collected <laughs> things. She,
0: sheer anxiety is yeah. what, that's, yes. what that is from. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. Good, <laughs> well,
2: gosh, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, in the end, when I signed the contract with Edinburgh, from then on out, it was it was a really good experience um copy editing went fine i ended up doing my own index for the book which is maybe not something everyone like considers at first when you're ready to do the book but it's also this long process that does put some thought into the project itself um and in the end it it was published right on time edinburgh was able to help with some sort of events to publicize it some Mm -hmm. book talks so that all went i think it went really fantastic
0: and and do you feel, so there's always this notion that when you're on the job market, like how fresh mm. your topic is. So, you yeah. you know, when you just finish your dissertation, it's like, oh, you're going to, it's going to become a book project. Yeah. Like how, after you publish and then you're on the job market, how do you get a sense of like, are they just thinking about, oh, what's your next mm-hmm. project? Because you've already done this, yeah. it's already a book. Or does it have like several years of like, oh, you're producing things from the book. Or from the book. You know, I, mm. I'm i sure it varies, but yeah. that's something just sort of thinking about yeah, how people see it when you're, like, how soon mm. should you try to publish? Is there any strategy behind thinking around, thinking yeah. about that?
2: I think that was also part of, I mean, for the job market as well to get a book out, but also because this is fresh research and you want to get it out there.
0: Yeah. So that no one, <laughs> in
2: some ways, so that no one else is doing it and is publishing on it yeah. before you know all the work you put into it
0: exactly can actually then be
2: appreciated so i think that was part of the anxiety and stress as well to publish your very first thing you know the phd i think now when you get to the second idea of a book Mm -hmm. maybe you have a better understanding of what you can get done and what is or isn't needed to be pushed out there really quickly Mm -hmm. although i think with that said being on the job market everyone says you know you have a book that's really really good but and I, you know, it, I can see that that is a good thing. And when I'm interviewed for jobs, you know, that that comes up for mm-hmm. sure, and it is a good thing. But I sometimes get the sense that in the kind of competitive market that there is with higher education and with getting people in, <laughs> uh, into jobs, and in, in few jobs, that sometimes if you have a second book or a second book project underway, even if the job description is for like early career,
0: mm-hmm.
2: that's going to put some people at an advantage over others, mm-hmm. which is really. I mean, how do you know that when you apply for a job, though? That, yeah. You know, what is the committee looking for? Mm-hmm. I think in the UK, publications maybe are emphasized more mm-hmm. because of the way that research is funded. And each, however many years, there's a, research, a nationwide research exercise where every university, every department has to submit what they've produced, basically, Mm -hmm. for classification in this wider scheme. And then that determines funding. Mm -hmm. But I think as well, thinking of a book, too, and also what's publishing out of a book, what you're working on. It seems to me in the last couple of years, there's also this interest by job committees to know if you can tie what you're researching to your teaching like research-led teaching sort of thing. Ah, so looking okay. at citizenship in Palestine, for instance, how does this inform your teaching? How can you teach using this kind of research as well? Mm-hmm. For undergraduates, maybe not necessarily graduate students, although yeah. that's, that's probably yeah. what's very important too, but that's also something to think about. How are the wider themes that you're researching and publishing articles and writing about, how would they be attractive to the, a department wanting to hire you to teach mm-hmm. undergraduates?
1: Yeah, that's a really good point. I'm curious as to um, where you were professionally as you were writing the book. So were you already lecturing? Mm. Were you looking? Um, I know we have a lot of questions about where to look and, like, what, how do you find out about positions? Could um, you tell us, like, maybe a little bit more yeah. about that? Yeah. So when
2: I started, kind of. I mean, I did, and I think I would recommend after you finish the TA, PhD. I was also teaching at that point. So I I was I did the defense, and then I finished and got the PhD, did the corrections. But I was also teaching at SOAS on a temporary contract, mm-hmm. which was fine. But it also meant that I didn't right away try and do something with the PhD because I just didn't have the time. Mm-hmm. So it was only once I got a postdoc a few months later that the postdoc itself was designed in a way, so it was three years long. The first year, I would not trying to remember. It wasn't that long ago. (laughs) The first semester, I was not teaching. Mm -hmm. The second semester of the first year, I was TAing on a course. So basically, the first year of this three-year postdoc was designed in a way that I could have that time to get the book ready to Mm -hmm. go. And so by the time the first year ended, that was when the book was in press. So once the postdoc then was teaching and research, Mm -hmm. not heavy teaching because it was still a postdoc, that opened up space for me to start thinking about the second project. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah.
0: And think, so, um, so, so, how do you sort of find out about, like, even the the, yeah. the less desirable positions, <laughs> temporary positions, like getting that, yeah. you know, temporary contracts? Is it very informal? Are yeah. there formal postings? Is there like a yeah. how similar is it, similar is it to the sort of the well talked about or advertised like 10, you know, tenure track, yeah. like job searches versus, mm-hmm. you know, finding, you know, adjuncting or, yeah. you know, not that that's the ideal, but that's the reality for yeah. many people. So how, how does that work?
2: Well, I think for the most part, a lot of, most of the main jobs, tenure track jobs, permanent positions are advertised on places that academics would look for jobs. So that in the UK it was jobs.ac.uk, which is mostly focused in in the uk sometimes in in europe as well but publishes or you know has weekly or daily job adverts for Mm -hmm. history uh if you want to specify a middle east history you know various disciplines as well so that's the first place i've looked and continue to look there's also the the chronicle of higher education Mm. um the times higher education that publishes also job adverts usually again for ones that are going to be around jobs that are going to last for a little bit. Um, A lot of the temporary, I mean, and this isn't necessarily across the board, but some of the temporary jobs I've applied for, some which I've had interviews for, I knew about by word of mouth. Like, you know, someone who (laughs) might be in need of, but not that, that, you know, I still was interviewed for them, but you know, that's how I sort of found out that Mm -hmm. someone is leaving a position or going on sabbatical Mm -hmm. and teaching needs to be filled for a short time uh, you know other colleagues in other disciplines who have colleagues themselves within history that mm-hmm. said, you know, I'll flag that's up to you now. It's coming up, mm-hmm. and yeah, I, mean, I guess that's that's the way I've been able to look for mm-hmm. jobs. So there's sort of more formal means, <laughs> but then there's also these other, you know, once you your colleagues or your cohort also have an idea of what's happening in the field yeah, and what's in the lay of need, the then... land. Of yeah, 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 exactly. So So make lots of friends. <laughs> yeah, that's totally yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and in varying departments too. Yeah, yeah. People that can also keep their eye out for you in, yeah. in other fields. Yeah,
0: the 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 deeper you know Benefit mm. of interdisciplinary is yeah, <laughs> like yeah. knowing people that will be, have a position somewhere and they're like, oh, this department's looking yeah. for something. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Although at the same time, I mean, recently a colleague just passed me an email about a position, a postdoc somewhere that I hadn't seen advertised anywhere, but it had been. So I think there's still some things that you miss mm-hmm. unless you're somehow signed up to a hundred different listservs <laughs> and, and you really are meticulous about also then looking at different universities' own websites and like job opportunities. Pages, Which is, it's almost more work than (laughs) you want to be doing when you're also trying to finish a PhD or write or teach. Yeah. Yeah. So it's another job in itself, hunting for these positions.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: (laughs) But MESA, I think MESA for our own field for Middle East studies, MESA as well maintains a fairly good job listing or job posting Mm -hmm. list. So that's all, I I should have mentioned that as well, the employment opportunities at MESA too. Uh
1: and so we've talked about publishing and teaching now i think we've been also curious about sort of the administrative side of doing these kinds of positions and i think we're from more familiar with like what senior faculty have to do in terms of committee work but i'm yeah. sure that adjuncts and you know even lecture positions and junior faculty obviously also are involved in these processes mm-hmm. like how uh kind of how much labor goes into that? Yeah. I should maybe say this is kind of, this is somewhat negative, but um,
2: I think after and during I was, you know, during the time I was doing the PhD or that not the PhD, sorry, the postdoc, It was three years, which was this good cushion. But certainly by like the last year and a half, I was applying for jobs. Mm -hmm. And in the interviews I was getting, this was something that kept coming up. And I felt I was really weak on, Mm -hmm. you know, what are your leadership skills? What are your administrative skills? Mm -hmm. What are your, you know, pastoral care for students? Can you give examples of these things? And, you know, as a postdoc or as a PhD student doing, you know, graduate teaching assistant stuff, you don't necessarily know what to say. Say always to that, mm-hmm. or you don't actually. You haven't served on the committees too that make certain decisions. Yeah. I think to be able to give a good response for that. And I still think I mean that's one issue with adjuncting in these temporary positions. You don't get the full spectrum of duties that job committees expect someone on the tenure track yeah. to have. What they're, what they're looking for yeah, to fit into lo- the administrative needs yeah. of the department, and also to be able to sell yourself to those administrative yeah. needs. Yeah. And I think that's where I'm, I fell <laughs> short. Although I mean, I think for sure the pastoral care of students—so meeting students in office hours, kind of understand—not supervising them necessarily for their degrees, but understanding what's needed for the students to complete their courses—is something that I I have definitely done. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of administration, though, you know, there's been some things, some committees I have served on, but at the, you're right. It, at the senior level that you get a lot more of that I mean something that I have been doing which is kind of outside of this but is trying to organize events so lecture series or reading groups things Mm -hmm. like that which aren't necessarily on the same level but they also involve planning they also involve you know budgeting Mm -hmm. um, understanding who's doing what kind of research inviting them organizing you know a broad range of uh, you know a lecture or seminar series to bring in other people Um, so yeah I'm not sure that's That's a question that I can answer so well. Um, But certainly, I think the interaction with students is paramount to be able to show that you've done and can do for any, you know, job committee. They want to see, you know, you're able to both help students, but also, you know, you give them feedback, you're grading essays, you're doing all of that kind of stuff that teaching involves, Mm -hmm. that can also show, you know, you have these skills that are applicable to committee roles and things like that. Mm -hmm. So... I guess, although maybe one thing that, again, it's not so related, but I think it helps to get yourself out there is to volunteer for or at least make known if you want to peer review, say, book manuscripts or articles. Mm-hmm. I think that is also something that's probably beneficial in the long run and yeah, also in the to, short to show, term.
0: To show that you're doing sort of effort to be in sort of do these various duties mm. you'll be sort of expected to be part of once yeah. you're... Once you would get sort of the yeah. the fabled position exactly like yeah editor uh, yeah <laughs> the, <laughs> rumors the, the rumors the rumors yeah that. speculation yeah you know putting
2: yourself out there you know, even putting together special journal editions mm-hmm. things like yeah. that that do yeah put you ahead <laughs> for this <laughs> yeah. imaginary unicorn of a job yeah. but <laughs>
0: do do you feel that when you were. Um, a PhD student at mm. SOAS and you you mentioned that you particularly got lots of teaching experience was there a was that a concerted effort on your part to be like I'm gonna mm. try to go out of, to get teaching experience and like yeah you know consciously try to build that into because this is what my you mm. know what I'm trying to build my career yeah. to do this yeah yeah of, definitely yeah
2: and it was also a symptom of In the UK, the lack of funding. Yeah, also having having a living. You also have to pay. And London is not cheap. (laughs) So I was also trying, yeah, the hustle as well. But at the same time, this is what I wanted to do. I mean, I wanted to teach. And luckily enough, I mean, SOAS was the place where there was a lot of opportunities for teaching Middle East history, but not necessarily just modern Middle East. I was also doing TA stuff on a course that was like the history of the Islamic world from, you know, before Prophet Muhammad to the modern day. So things like that, I was really interested in teaching as well. Mm -hmm. Um, But also, and this is also something I was in London, so there were other universities as well that, again, the nature of these short-term kind of adjunct stuff there are positions available. So I could also, um, in one case, teach at another university within London. Another, you know, I was able to do master's teaching through that, that I wasn't able to Mm. teach master's students in the same way at SOAS, Mm. for instance. So I also got that under my belt Mm. during the end of the PhD. So, and I, you know, that was something I, you know, sought out and had some people who knew that another university was looking for this sort of PhD student or just finished PhD student to teach a little bit. So yeah, it was definitely something I found really important to do. Um, and I was very lucky that SOAS was accommodating, you know, throughout the almost the entire PhD after I finished my field work to mm-hmm. have teaching available. So
0: yeah. Um, should we go back in time? And um, and, and, yes. and as of, historians. Yeah, as historians, you know, the long the long, mm, long durée. Oh, so yeah. how did you yeah just sort of how did you come to decide you wanted to have a career Mm. teaching history Middle Eastern history you know more less less on sort of the the job market Uh prospects but (laughs) but 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 the ideals the deal the ideals that led you to this yeah
2: yeah. (laughs) or this the ignorance of the job what (laughs) the job market would be in like a decade's time yeah yeah (laughs) I think from the time I was a a freshman doing my undergraduate that's when I really thought oh I can make some kind of career out of Mm -hmm. researching and teaching what I'm really really interested and passionate Mm -hmm. about Um, and I was lucky enough during the undergrad years to have a couple of classes that were super, you know, interesting modern history, one with the Middle East, another with Latin America that I was just, you know, really blown away by, oh, I could actually teach this and be doing all of these readings and thinking about this (laughs) for the long term. And that's when I started, you know, thinking, oh, I would really like to do a PhD and specifically research something that I was really interested in, Mm -hmm. which eventually, I mean, after, you know, series of the, the masters and then trying to figure out a PhD topic settled on, um, pre-48 Palestine and this idea of citizenship and also mm-hmm. Palestinian Arab diaspora and British colonialism as part of all of that um, and it really just progressed from there I'm mean, getting interested in it as an undergraduate and realizing I would need language study I would need to potentially and this is something as well that is important you know you want to be able or you have to be able to also move around for doing research for different programs you know your master's is not always at the same place as your phd so mm-hmm. there's also that element you also have to be willing to think of yourself working and teaching and researching in a lot of different places yeah. so and that was something that i was lucky enough to to be able to do once i got um accepted to soas and was able to then really focus and do the phd and i think a lot of what i was hoping would happen i mean it, maybe yeah job market aside but that's what i have been able to do i've been able Mm -hmm. to work on topics i'm interested in um for more or less been able to get research funding you know not in huge levels but maybe someday (laughs) but to do archival to continue doing archival work and also to be able to teach and that's something luckily at yale i've been able to pretty much teach what i've wanted i mean design courses and not you know be told teach this to you know meet these objectives Mm -hmm. so that's also been really really rewarding i think
1: Mm -hmm. so kind of to add to that idea too i'm curious about because you mentioned like language study and moving around mobility Mm, being open to that um kind of curious about if you've had any experiences or opportunities that are sort of like unconventional or like Mm. you know um or even like how did you how were you able to acquire all of those skills that now seem so central to kind of yeah. your success and your ability to to do these yeah. things that you're just so interested in yeah but I, mean, I hate to say this word of networking because it's like <laughs> God who wants to just go and network
2: at conferences all day but I think in many ways the people that you meet when you're doing even your master's degree and then the early stages of the PhD are really important for the connections that they might have so for instance Even when I first started at SOAS, there are people there who, you know, would say when you go and do your field research, contact this, this and this person, not necessarily just for research help, but they might be able to plug you into these other networks. So when I did the the research, I was able to also um, in the West Bank for the most part, and in Jerusalem, I was able to also do some some more language study, but also to work with a couple of projects in the West Bank at one of the universities, helping with archiving. So that was something I didn't necessarily expect would happen um, to be able to you know do something a little bit different from my own research, but to also do some work with another university and things. Um, so yeah, I mean, I don't know if that's you know, maybe one of the few examples of using mobility to do other things as well mm-hmm. alongside research, mm-hmm. although I think it's getting increasingly difficult, probably, for certain scholars to be able to do that, to get into certain countries without visas. Mm-hmm. And so I think <laughs> <Yeah>. like, increasingly <laughs> doing a PhD in the UK now would be a little less inviting with problems with Brexit and European Union funding. So yeah. Yeah. I think funding also plays a role in what you can and can't do and how mobile you can and can't be even for just doing your research, your field work. Yeah. So.
1: And also the type of institution um, Tyler and I were talking about this earlier because mm. did my MA here at Yale and then went to a public institution you know, now that I'm doing a PhD. Yeah. And so like, how do those different structures create different types of scholarship just because yeah. of, certain limitations and certain obligations when you're publicly funded mm-hmm. and you have obligations to taxpayers versus, you know, other more private sources. So you have to kind of, like... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to, to, yes, to, to vaguely you Yale's yeah. funding. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> yeah. Um mm-hmm. You know, thinking about, you know, how, what yeah. ramifications that has yeah. in terms of... That's a really good point.
2: I mean, I think like doing my PhD at SOAS and getting funding to do the research bit of it, no one would bat an eye that anyone doing a PhD at SOAS would go to the Middle East or to certain countries for research. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas I think at a publicly funded institution in the state, and this is maybe also divide between the UK and Europe and the US, but to do certain research in the US and use taxpayer money to do that, especially on certain topics to do with the Middle East is increasingly maybe it always has been but I think it is also increasingly publicly a political thing that sometimes you have to then be able to answer for why do you want to do this research why is it actually important outside of this narrow scope of what you are interested in and in some ways why is this beneficial to even like the national interest for instance so there's also that kind of caveat of funding and where it's tied to and private versus public universities Mm -hmm. dictating right what kind of research then is actually put out and what kind of Research can be put out for certain institutions that stress teaching right. above having some time to do research. Yeah. So that's also kind of a divide between the scholarship that's then, that then comes out, I guess. Yeah. And who, even who can and can't get to do a PhD. Mm-hmm. I mean, the re- if the resources aren't available at certain public institutions to prepare students to do that, it's not as if you know, everyone in the MA program at certain state-funded schools can do a PhD. Right. When compared to the massive amount of resources from publicly funded or from privately funded universities so not to kind
0: of yeah went <laughs> down the... no no yeah. there it's it's sort of disgusting especially at mm-hmm. some uh, public institutions where uh, students become sort of indentured servants to just teaching and that's yeah. the real reason you're there because you're much yeah. a che- you're a much cheaper teacher yes, for the yeah, university yeah. to pay than hiring new yeah. faculty. Yeah, um, I
2: think that's increasing uh, and everyone. yeah it
0: goes in yeah with yeah. with adjuncts, yeah, as well, and so that's a mm. a larger i think a larger problem, yeah. in academia in yeah. sort of yeah
1: I think you're i mean are really observant in pointing out there like both political and economic sort of mm. sh- fundamental shifts um specifically for academia, but especially mm. in the field in in the middle east field, so yeah. I think that that's really. Helpful for us to be mindful of and mm. sort of maybe keeping with that idea I was curious if you mm. had any what would you tell yourself if you were to go back to ph- your <laughs> PhD like at the beginning of your PhD knowing what yeah. you know now like what yeah. would you tell yourself tell mm. us <laughs> yeah huh. I
2: think I would certainly be more open to the idea that it might not always work out getting a job in academia. And with that in mind, to be able to acquire or maybe, again, sort of put yourself out there for other skills. Mm-hmm. I mean, research is pretty transferable, even if in the academic world, jobs are less scarce. There's certainly a lot of research and writing positions outside of that. Um, so just not to really limit, yourself to thinking that there's only one thing you can do with a PhD in history. And I think most people realize, I mean, there's, there's lots more, but I think in these fields, like Middle East studies or things that are very specific, that's almost what's expected is that then you'll go on to an institution and teach. Mm-hmm. Whereas maybe, and again, this I'm, what do I know about American, or you know, colonial historians, but they also have maybe wider networks of what public history is within that field yeah. and opportunities for employment in very different ways than I think our own field of Middle East Studies has really pushed mm-hmm. quite
0: yet. Yeah. And there's lots of, there's lots of talk about jobs outside of yeah. academia, but not a lot of Content usually, yeah. or like yeah. example, like concrete like, examples yeah. like, of how. Ha- ha- yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
2: Exactly, or concrete examples of people who work outside of academia yeah. and are actually really happy and fulfilled and successful, and they're still doing what they want to do. I mean, it's only if I would, if I could go back, I would start thinking about these other jobs earlier. Mm-hmm. It's only more recently that I that I have and realize what and how to even write a CV or a resume mm-hmm. for something that's not an academic mm-hmm. job because you're not taught that, for the most part, by your supervisor. <laughs> that's not, I mean, you're stressed, no. you know, this <laughs> is how you yeah, <laughs> put your publication on, but what about all of these other things that should be on a non-academic CV? Mm-hmm. But, yeah, so that's probably the main thing.
0: Uh, what what types of sort of non-academic jobs have you been thinking about or thinking about mm-hmm. skill, or thinking about certain skills that you feel are transferable yeah. to different... Different fields.
2: I think, I mean, for, for Middle East studies, there's obviously what everyone always says is, oh, well, you know, the government's hiring. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, it's not I just Middle East, Yeah. yeah. But...
2: but things, I mean, not that I've necessarily applied for those
0: the, the kinds of co- jobs. Clo- the colonial project's still ongoing. Yes. <laughs> yeah,
2: exactly. We're in... yeah. yeah. Exactly. Yeah. The State Department, they, they want people who are interested in the Middle East. But you also <laughs> have to realize, I mean, I don't really want to kind of give up on my morals and standings yeah. and my feelings about certain things happening in the Middle East to mm-hmm. work for a government or state agency that maybe uses academics in a particular way, but doesn't necessarily act on what's for the best. I don't know, yeah, I, but yeah, sounds right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so there are you know those kind of jobs or mm-hmm. consultancy jobs for mm-hmm. firms or international companies or organizations, which I know plenty of um, colleagues have gone into doing that, and others have gone into working for parliaments in other places as well as mm-hmm. sort of advisors, which maybe is somewhat important, mm-hmm. you know, to use the skills and the research you've done during a PhD to advise state or country representatives. Uh, but there's also loads, I think, of writing jobs as well. So that's also something that probably during the PhD I didn't think about, and no one tells you enough. You know, your writing can also be used in other ways. Mm-hmm. These skills that you're acquiring um, for other other jobs, you know, law firms, again, consultancies, mm-hmm. publishing as well. You know, when we think of you know the publishing field in academia, that's something that I think a lot of people who do a PhD in a specific topic would, you know, if if they were looking for jobs outside of the field of just teaching and yeah. working in higher education, that's also
1: something I think attractive.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And it still kind of connects you to your interests. Yes, yeah, exactly. So it's yeah. like you don't feel like you're kind of, oh, no, I did all this work, and yeah, now yeah. where's that going? You know, it's, it's like, yeah, I didn't even think about that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But that's something that like <laughs> I'm
2: struggling with now, all of this work that I've done and, you know, years of teaching and research, what happens when there's never going to be a permanent job? I and mean, how do you kind of reconcile all the work you've done with how much longer can you kind of keep up with you know the job market being adjunct in temporary track positions but Mm -hmm. yeah I think this is a conversation that probably a lot of us are having or will have or Mm -hmm. unfortunately maybe supervisors haven't yet had with students of certain generations maybe supervisors that are used to plentiful jobs
0: yes they've They've made it through through the storm. Yeah. They're the, they're the survivors. Yeah. <laughs> they're, you
2: know. yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I think that's the other thing. There's a lot of PhDs coming out in history, and Middle East mm-hmm. history. But what is the relationship of our supervisors to this field when we're you know, passing these PhDs, many of which are fantastic, but mm-hmm. when there aren't jobs? And I find that... In the job market, you know, I've been competing with colleagues and friends who I really, you know, admire and respect, but we're getting interviewed for the same jobs. and But it's, which is fine, but, you know, <laughs> it's really great people getting interviewed for these jobs, which means that all of the other great people who don't get it, what, you know, what
0: happens yeah. To, yeah.
2: to those of us? So we're, I mean, I feel like I'm in a field where I'm competing with excellent colleagues and mm-hmm. it's just there aren't enough jobs. So,
0: or permanent yeah, jobs. Yeah, and that though. has to be a really... Weird experience thinking about people that you've become <laughs> friends with or yeah. colleagues with, and being like, "Oh, wait, yeah, I, I need many... to make a living." Yeah. <laughs> like, so do seeing you? <laughs> <it's> just, <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> seeing you at the job interviews, yeah. and, or
2: at least the ones in the UK where everyone's always interviewed on the same day or mm. the first couple of days, and then yeah, it's not really like That's here right. where it's very different. And it's like, oh, hello again. Will I be seeing you, and Mesa, this year? Things like that. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting time to be part of this field. I mean, for good things, but also for these, you know, what's going to happen five, ten years down the line, Mm -hmm. especially as universities, again, maybe it's not so bad here in the US, but in the UK, begin to actually cut staff and cut programs. And university becomes about which degrees can students make the most money out of, meaning the ones that aren't seen as as viable, what happens to the teaching on on those kind of classes Mm -hmm. and language study. I mean, <laughs> yeah. So, what's sustainable?
0: Well, thanks for doing this. <laughs> yeah, thank uh, you our both. first thank our you first both. episode <laughs> with us.
2: Uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to how this shapes out, what you guys are doing, and what kind of conversations come out of it from others. So definitely that's really yeah, important. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank no, you thank much. you both. I'm really glad to to talk and also learn about the you know what's going on now. From both of you, from your <laughs> oh, own yes, like, no, from our... Invest- in the trenches. Yeah, yeah in the trenches. <laughs> yeah, and hopefully, an investigatory
0: uh, podcast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> but it's important. I mean, if I had this when I was a PhD student, and I'm sure it was happening places, but I wish I would have known or yeah. thought to this is the kind of maybe I should be talking to people in this format and mm-hmm. spreading the word
0: or. Yeah, well this is really a selfish venture for mm. us. No because <laughs> asking it's, it's people so important. To feel about it <laughs> yeah. and pretending that there's a podcast that we're doing <laughs> at the same time.
1: And it's a way to make yeah. more friends, which I hear is the key to success. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> no,
0: Friendship. That's, that that's yeah. the <laughs> moral moral of the story. Yeah.
2: <laughs> Although if only See, it's like I'm at the stage where like the good friends and colleagues are not yet in the position where they can just hire <laughs> that's the rest. Right. That's, right. that's what needs to happen. <laughs> so yeah.
0: Thanks for listening, and thank you to our guest, Lauren Banco. And if
1: you're interested in telling your story and experience with the Middle East job market, please email us at projectwasta at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Instagram at Project Wasta and Facebook at Project Wasta Podcast.